0: In this episode, we wait out there with Matt Wagner from Veroqua, Wisconsin. Matt grew up working in fly shops, fished all through college, and made the decision to chase his passion for fly fishing after graduation. After guiding in New Mexico, Matt and his wife decided to move to the Driftless region in Wisconsin to raise their children and pursue their dreams of opening a fly shop, which they named the Driftless Angler. We discussed the Driftless region and tactics and techniques for fishing this special place. Welcome to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Shemchuk. At Wade Out There, we believe fly fishing is special but not elite, and that anyone can become a great fly fisher if they are willing to go, learn, and teach. Join me as I talk with other fly fishermen and women about their unique journeys into fly fishing, the rivers they fish, and the tactics and philosophies they practice. For those who can never leave the river in their hearts, this podcast. dedicated to helping you make the memories that keep us all coming back to wait out there welcome matt thanks for being on the wait out there podcast i'm excited to talk to you today
1: thank you for having me it's a good good time to talk fishing in the wisconsin off season when it's kind of cold and miserable and we can't fish so happy to talk fly fishing
0: yeah you're welcome back from uh where were you guys in argentina
1: yeah. Yeah. We do a bunch of hosted trips each year, both for trout and Patagonia and Dorado in the Northern section. So uh, it's, it's kind of nice again, getting away from Wisconsin uh, winters every, every once in a while.
0: Right. So when you say this is the off season, it's not really the off season because you guys are so fishy that you just, just keep it, keep it going.
1: Correct. Just yeah. Move. I think the words, I think the words <laughs> addicted, not fishy, but thank you for saying that.
0: <laughs> uh, all right. Addicted. Okay. Addicted to being fishy. Um, well, cool. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you uh, a lot because we just moved from the Midwest. I have this affinity now. We lived there for like seven years, and we weren't in Wisconsin. We were in Missouri, but I, you know, we traveled around a little bit in that area, and I've flown some trips out there as well. And and I just the people are so nice, friendly, and uh, I really think there's a lot of beauty out there, and um, certainly in the in the places that you fish as well. And where I was fishing, even in Missouri, I thought was really, really beautiful. So. I think that's cool. I don't know that it's like a, a hidden gem anymore. I'm interested in your opinions on that. Is it is it a secret? Or we're not going to do any spot burning today? But I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that.
1: Yeah, the, the Midwest. This kind of set up in a unique. It has a unique setup to it where, especially here in Wisconsin, is we have extremely good trout fishing. We have extremely good smallmouth bass fishing. We have extremely good musky fishing all within two or three hours of each other. So unlike when you're out west and you have to drive a couple of hours to get trout stream to trout stream, you can get multiple fishing opportunities um, and multiple fish species all within a long weekend or, or week, which is really, really cool and something fairly unique to this Midwest and upper Midwest.
0: Yeah, that is very cool. Do you fly fish for muskies too up there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. In our area, it's not great. We have to travel north a little bit. We've got a couple of of good friends who run a fly shop uh, in in northern, a couple of good friends and a couple of good fly shops in the northern part of Wisconsin and Minnesota. Uh, And it's fantastic up there for sure.
0: Can you talk to me a little bit about how you ended up in the Midwest and where you're from originally? Because this is not your uh, growing up home. And I know you spent some time in New Mexico and uh, I'm interested in that in that journey and how it took you out to that area?
1: The, the shortened version of the journey is my favorite. However, <laughs>
0: however long you want it to be,
1: Matt, it's up to you. It would, it would get really boring if I told the long one. <laughs> okay. All right. I, I started working in fly shops when I was 13 years old. Uh, in a little town in Rochester, northern suburbs of Detroit in Michigan, uh, I was you know, doing inventory and, and sorting all the errant flies and putting them back in the bin and they paid me in a fly rod and fly reel. Now, lucky enough that I had a small trout stream and a couple of ponds full of bluegill to, to grow up fishing at there. Yeah. And it was really a way, you know, when you're, when you're 13 and, and you don't have don't know, much to do and your parents say, get the heck out of the house and go do something, I ended up wandering into a fly shop and said, oh, this looks kind of cool. This looks really fun. Um, and then it just kind of caught on from there. Uh, but 15, 16, I was helping teach casting classes, you know, as a, a quote unquote assistant for the, uh, for the fly shop owner there in the, in the little park. Uh, and again, it, it just became my passion. It became uh, kind of what defined me from there on out. From Michigan graduated from college and my path in life I, that I got to choose was either go to grad school. I have a very, very useful degree in ancient history. Uh, so what? Was,
0: ancient to, history? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of
1: very overeducated fly fishing guides and owners out there with really weird degrees. <laughs> so I'm one of uh, them. <laughs> ancient
0: history. That's a cool one, man. That's cool. And you went to school in Michigan for that? Yes. Were you fishing a lot during that?
1: Oh, I, I, I think I spent Two weekends on campus, my entire college career. So I was fishing uh-huh. every single weekend, and and you know, packing my courses so that I had Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday classes, so I could have three and four day weekends to go fish. So yeah, yeah, I was bit bit by the bug hard for sure. So after after graduating, I've you know, got my undergraduate degree and it was either go to grad school. I had a professor that really liked me that had a, uh, a job out west somewhere at, at grad school or go live in Fernie, British Columbia and help somebody start a an outfitter business and guide business there. Yeah. So- I chose the, the trout bum life, and I was lucky enough to spend a, a full season in Fernie, British Columbia. Again, I was quote-unquote working, but, you know, <laughs> I wasn't really. Uh, it just was a trout bum for a season and, and helped a good friend of mine start an outfitting business up there. And I had to find a real job after that. Uh, when I was on spring break, I forget which year, it doesn't matter, I went down to Taos, New Mexico and fished down there. I'd never been there before. wanted to see Taos, do some hiking, do some fishing type deal. Um, so that's I, I spent my, my spring break week fly fishing in, uh, in northern New Mexico. So when I was in Fernie in British Columbia, I knew I had to get a job. I emailed the fly shop owner down there and said, hey, I'm looking to work, you know, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And the one insider bit of information, if you ever want a job in the fly fishing industry, especially as a guide, always tell people that you're willing to work in the shop as well. You know, don't just say I want to be a guide. Everybody you know wants to be a guide, but a little bit of time in the shop and and giving shop owners breaks is a very very good thing. So, anyways, so I emailed the uh, the owner and said, hey, I'm looking for a job. I said, yeah, come on down and and take a look. Again, long story short, as I moved down there for four or five years, managed a shop, guided down there, uh, you know, met my wife, we had our son down there, uh, and. We were just looking for, as you said, in the Midwest, kind of a better place to to raise kids. Taos is awesome. It's fantastic. Um, like any ski town, it, it has all of its own problems. Uh, but we kind of wanted to get back to to the more, quote-unquote, family-friendly Midwest here.
0: I You don't have to... I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about, man. I mean, it is a really, really nice place. I love the Midwest. Um, I was... We ended up moving <laughs> to a ski town, but... Uh, you know i don't know we just we always wanted to be in the mountains so here we are but um i think it's uh when you said you went fishing on spring break it reminded me i i also went on some spring breaks fly fishing i think that is maybe indicative of someone who kind of really like fly fishing if you're if you're passing up uh some of the other spring break destinations. Absolutely, go.
1: yeah. The, the addiction is real when you're bypassing, you know, your life choices involve fly fishing and and not going to uh, to, to other functions. I, I never went to a college football game. Had that discussion with my wife actually this past week, and and I have never been to a college football game <laughs> when I was I love it. College. I, I love it. Fishing, so. I
0: got a lot. Of re- I got a lot of respect for you. That's awesome.
1: <laughs> Thank you for being uh, polite.
0: <laughs> yeah, I had to go to a football game. They made me. I had to march in in uniform and stand. And uh, yeah, it was a different, uh, different scene, but uh, all right. Well, okay. So now you're in Taos, you decided to move to the Midwest. Was it a given that you're going to open a fly shop? Was that just the next level? I mean, did you and your wife talk about that as a, as a big step or because, I mean, I just think that's super cool, but it's also a big leap of faith, right?
1: Absolutely, positively. And you had asked before if it's a hidden gem here anymore. And in some circumstances, it is for sure. Now, this is yeah. our 16th year of having the shop here. We did move here specifically. 16? 16, yes. Yep. Nice.
0: That's awesome, man. Congrats. That's well, cool. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And we did move here specifically to open a fly shop. I wouldn't say that it was all set in stone. Obviously, we did our research, talked to some local guides, talked to the uh, the DNR here, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and now that we're 16 years in, I can say that we actually we visited this town and did our research, but we had our business plan, our initial loan, and, and uh, our first orders before we had ever wet a line here. We never fished here. We opened, we opened the shop without ever having fished here, which is not smart, but um, again, we had some people helping us out. We had some people, you know, giving us information. Um, we knew it was an up-and-coming fishery here in the Driftless. Uh, it's a really cool, really unique fishery that's being taken care of on every level. So when, when we had our son, we were sitting in New Mexico saying, where can we open a fly shop? You know, where can we look to be able to raise our family, um, to be able to open a fly shop where there isn't already super saturated with fly shops? And I came back in, in my brain, I came back to the, the guy that I grew up fishing with is from South Central Minnesota originally. And when we were fishing, I've been fishing with him for about 30 years. When we were fishing together, we'd say, where would you have a fly fishing business of some sort? You know, and when he got rid of the goofy ones of trying to find some hidden tailwater down in Tennessee or, or, you know, uh, Mongolia or somewhere in Australia or something goofy like that, the spring peaks of the driftless area always came up in conversation. He knew of them because he was from Minnesota and had fished them. I only knew of them at that point by reputation. And that was kind of what I had in my mind. Uh, And when I pitched that to, to Jerry, my wife, Jerry, she looked at me and, you know, that why the cuss word would I ever move to Wisconsin? You know, she's from the West Coast and, and never really been yeah. in the Midwest. And I don't want to move there. It's winter, it's snow, it's boring. What do the, they, they have peas there, which is good. You know, that, that actually was a selling point for both of us. But so we came here and visited the town, uh, again, having done some research and talking to some people and fell in love with it. The town's fantastic. You had mentioned yeah. earlier that, you know, the Midwest friendly. Is it's almost like taking a step back in time where people still wave on the streets and stop and say, Oh, you know, where are you from? You know, what do you yeah. do here? type deal. It's
0: really, it's really cool. It's it, very, it's really, very really cool. interesting yeah.
1: culture for sure. So we fell in love with the town, and um, you know, this was right after the economic kind of crash and disaster. So yeah. We found a really nice building for sale and just kind of said, okay, let's do this. Let's pull the trigger. They have a really cool food co-op. They've got lodging. They've obviously got fantastic fishing. There's a hockey rink, which is also very important. You know, from somebody who grew up in, in Michigan, hockey's a, a fairly big thing and both my kids have played. Uh, so yeah, we, we decided that this, this looks good. Let's, let's give this a shot. Uh, so we moved out here and the first week we were here, it was August and we'll get to the the fishing seasons and conditions. And coming from a Western background, British Columbia, Northern New Mexico, et cetera, is I didn't make the adjustment at first to not fish midday in august that was normally you know let's go fishing the august is awesome and Mm. it was also kind of a record heat wave it was a hundred something degrees when we moved in and i'm fishing the middle of the day in the sun and not seeing a fish not catching anything and going oh my gosh what did we just do this is awful it took me about a week (laughs) week and a half to catch a fish After we've moved our family, after we've bought a building, after we've made after
0: you farm spent farm. an entire life of fly fishing, so it's not that you're not good at catching fish. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I <like> <laughs> it's, it's not a me problem. What's going on? What have I done? Yeah, I could I can imagine that feeling. Yeah.
1: It was it was terrifying. You know, moved our family, put all of our finances, you know, eggs in one basket, and we can't catch fish. But uh, again, locals to the rescue, that Midwestern thing, is we started fishing with a couple of local guys, uh, John Bethke being one of them who invented the pink squirrel, which is a famous fly for the Midwest and kind of spreading elsewhere. Um, he kind of showed us the ropes and said, well, what are you doing? It's August. We don't we don't fish midday in August. We fish early and we fish late and avoid that kind of midday heat. And then the puzzle pieces kind of fell into place for us that at first summer and fall before we opened the shop. And and we could sleep, we could sleep at night, which is a good thing.
0: Oh man, I feel for you. Yeah. That would be a big, um, stressor, but it, it also goes to show, you know, how valuable being, you know, that local knowledge, like uh, having a guide or having a mentor or, or someone like that to, you know, I mentioned before, like you've been fishing your whole life, obviously a passionate angler and still a learning curve there, you know, new waters, you have to adjust and, and figure things out just like, just like everybody that, makes it a trip to any region really, you know, Hey, I gotta, gotta figure this out and what worked one place might not work another. And, uh, you know, I just always think about that when I think about guides and how valuable they are, uh, it's that local knowledge and the, the, the situational awareness they have. Do you have any other mentors that have helped you kind of through that journey of fly fishing either in the beginning or, um, through the transition?
1: Yeah, my, my fishing buddy, John John Bean from Michigan, uh, he helped me out a ton for sure. And that's, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years and started fishing with him pretty much from day one. Um, John Bethke here in town, Bob Bloomerick, who's another, you know, older guide here in town who's been doing this in the driftless area before they're even trout in the driftless area. Uh, Dennis Graupi, who used to own a shop here just up the road in the little town of Coon Valley, and unfortunately he passed away quite a few years ago, uh, but he gave us a bunch of knowledge as well. Uh, and really support from a lot of just local customers and anglers you know we fished with a bunch of people beginning going oh this is awesome you're opening a fly shop let me show you where i like to fish type deal so
0: it (laughs) it was a really kind
1: of a a very welcoming uh everybody embraced us with open arms which usually uh, when a business moves in and a fly shop so that fly shop's going to ruin the fishery and over exploit it and this that and the other but it was the case here so we're we're lucky uh, you know very very friendly people
0: wow that's wonderful to hear you mentioned before there was even trout. Is that Did I hear that right?
1: Yeah. So, so the history of the driftless, in a nutshell, the, the reason it's called the driftless is in the last couple of ice ages, the glaciers ring this area. They weren't necessarily on top of our land here. When glaciers retreat and withdraw, what they dig up and flatten out, what they deposit is called glacial drift. We don't have that here. So we have a bunch of fractured limestone, fractured sandstone, a bunch of bluffs and valleys that, that have been carved out by the water for thousands of years. And that's why our trout fishing is so good. We have all that fractured limestone and sandstone, so the water percolates in, gets the right chemical uh, chemistry makeup, gets the right pH, gets the right water temperature, and comes out as springs. So we have you know, hundreds upon hundreds of, of true Spring Creeks here and Spring Fred Creeks uh, that, that's very, very unique in the entire world.
0: All right. So this is obviously a place that's uh, prime for trout. And then when did the trout come in?
1: So what happened was pre-colonial is it was you know, obviously kind of trout everywhere, springs everywhere. When the, when the first European settlers arrived, they brought their knowledge of farming up on top of the ridges. So they cut down all the trees, started farming on the poor soil up on the ridges, and that all eventually washed down and eroded into these spring creeks. So you filled up the valley with the soils and it kind of choked off habitat and became muddy and warmed everything up because you blocked a bunch of springs. And then through the last 30, 40 years This area specifically, there's a little historical marker outside, again, of the little town of Coon Valley just up the road from us that says this is the nation's first watershed project. Back in the 1920s is they started doing contour strip farming, farming with the contours of the land, no-till farming, all these practices to keep the soils in the field and up on the hills instead of going down into the creeks. On top of that, again, Trout Unlimited, local conservation groups, the state, the federal government, they started investing time and money into bringing these creeks back. Uh, there's a national push from Trout Unlimited, the driftless area restoration Ever that covers all of the driftless, not just Wisconsin, that uh, yeah. over the past couple of decades is they've done a really, really good job. And it's not like they're re-engineering the streams. It's cool because they're letting mother nature do her work. So you had pre-colonial, everything was perfect. Colonists came in, screwed up the soils and and kind of choked off the creeks, and uh, now it's you can make an argument that the good old days of fly fishing in the driftless are right now. This is the best that these creeks have been since, you know, pre-farming, pre-colonial farming times.
0: So the trout were there before and then they went away and now they've been brought back.
1: Yes, correct. Yeah, the populations were super super low. There were a Got bunch of you know, suckers, catfish, just kind of muddy water type Uh, creeks of the area and then with just a little bit of tlc and letting mother nature do her thing and heal it's turned into a fantastic trout fishery over the past 20 40 years at this point
0: well this is usually when i ask why is the driftless region special fishery for you but i think you've explained it pretty well is there anything else that you want to say about why you particularly enjoy that that fishery the actual fishing of it and how you fish it
1: the cool thing about the Driftless for me is it's all short game, small stream fly fishing. Most of our creeks are one lane street to sidewalk size and you know, with a bunch of bends and curves in the meadows. The rivers, the creeks are all very easy to get to. They all follow the contours of the valleys, which the roads do as well. So you're not hiking miles on miles. You can hop in. There's a ton of public access of, of state land and county land. Um, some ang- very angler-friendly landowners as well. So easy to get to. It's kind of a, a for lack of a better term, it's an intimate fishing. You know, it's it's very short casts, very precise casts on these little. Uh, you know, it, it's really fun, kind of tight quarters fishing. It reminds you of being a kid. Now, when you were a kid and went down to the creek to throw or down to the pond to throw stuff at bluegill or the creek to throw something at trout, that's what this fishing kind of reminds everybody of. It's not this giant towering mountain with these really big tailwaters or freestone streams. It's just these nice little creeks that flow through the valleys that are just full of fish.
0: I can imagine that kids love fishing it then. I mean, you must have uh, kids that come out and fish and your own kids. Can you talk about uh, what that's like, whether it be your own kids or other, other folks that come in?
1: Absolutely. This fishery, again, in terms of access, in terms of getting here, in terms of infrastructure, restaurants, hotels, you're not going to a place that has a trailer park, a restaurant that may or may may not be open and one convenience store and six fly shops. There are towns all over the place. So it's a very travel friendly place to get to. The creeks are all easy to get to for kids and, you know, for people who have trouble walking, whatever it may be. Um, yeah. It's very simple, simple to get to. Fishing isn't always simple. There's still spring creeks, but because we're spring creeks for beginners or for kids, uh, it's really nice because you will see fish here. Not always right. going to catch them. They won't always be happy, but it's a very visual fishery here, too, which is really cool.
0: And it's my perception that it would be nice place for kids to kind of they can walk easily it's a you know it's a it's not difficult to take them and it's safe you know there's no like real treacherous rapids and things like there's nothing that's going to really be too uh too crazy for kids i guess or or like you said if you have trouble walking or something like that it seems like a comfortable place to fish to walk and see fish and be challenged Uh, in my, in my estimation, especially with kids, I guess.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Big, wide-open meadow streams. Uh, there are no real rocky boulders or anything. If you're up to your chest, you're in the deepest part of that creek, so you know, very slow-moving spring creeks. It's a very gentle fishery which translates again well to beginners or, you know, uh, kids if, if their attention span isn't fishing, fishing, fishing. There's tons of other stuff to do and kind of look at. Uh, and yeah. then the ease for um, anglers that uh, have trouble walking or elderly, they're, they're easy to get into. There aren't massive hikes. So you don't have to have any special equipment. You're not getting in and out of drift boats the whole time. You're having a leisurely walk on a little meadow stream. You might see a few cows, but that's, uh, that, that's it.
0: Is it a place where you're constantly having to learn and adjust, or is there kind of rhythms and patterns that that apply kind of seasonally that you look for?
1: Definitely you're overriding seasonal uh, patterns that you have. Winter fishing, we fish the middle portion of the day as the water temperatures climb. It's actually some really, really good dry fly fishing because it's all condensed between like 10 and 2. You get four hours or so to fish springtime is uh the peak of season for us pre-runoff so to speak that kind of mid to late april through mid-june we get our strongest hatches the fish are the happiest Um, and most importantly bankside vegetation is down you know a lot of our wild creeks it's only uh ankle high to shin high at that point so back casts and stuff are very very easy midsummer we do the opposite of what we do in the wintertime you know in an extreme we'll fish five to nine in the morning Take a midday break and then fish five to nine in the evening as well. As it's a water temperature game at that point, yeah. um, and then fall gets good again, uh, like spring that's mid to late September through the end of the season in Wisconsin, middle of October again, a peak of fishing in Minnesota and Iowa. They have some different rules, you can fish a bit later in limited capacities, um, but it's it's in Wisconsin, it's nice in the fall. They close it down for spawning. They're all brown trout and brook trout here in Wisconsin. Uh, they haven't stocked in 20 something years. So they're all naturally reproducing or, or native in, case, uh, in the case of some of the brook trout. So they close it in the fall in Wisconsin to protect spawning. And then the cult religion that is deer hunting in November, when everybody's <laughs> out in the woods with the rifles, you don't want to be on a creek at that point anyway. So you have all of these just kind of generic umbrella statements of the fishing's good in spring, you fish early and late in the summer. But one of the cool things about this fishery is things change really on a daily basis. You could have four or five days in a row that almost every condition's exactly the same air temperature water temperature you know, where the storms coming from but the fish behave differently every day so you can't just go and say okay i'm going to fish uh, this creek at this access point with this fly because it could change you know uh, from from day to day pretty easily it, it, it's a fishery that definitely keeps you on your toes
0: yeah i imagine that as as something where that's kind of part of the allure of it too is that it's 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 um you're walking around different streams that are kind of intertwined and crossing and meandering in different places. And so you're always like the landscape is changing as you move along and you're trying different things to find, to land on something that works.
1: Yeah, Positively. That's, that's very well said. Uh, In in terms of volume, you know, we can get really deep into backup plans here in the County. Our fly shops located in there, it's something like 260 miles of trout water. And each one of them has kind of a different feel to them. That's
0: crazy. And they're all these little, you know, little streams and, but the miles and miles, that's awesome.
1: Yep, exactly. And each one will have a different weather pattern. You know, it could be raining in Valley A and then bright and sunny in Valley B and shaded in Valley C. So you can kind of pop around and and throughout the day, pick and choose where your best fishing is going to be. Obviously, if you spend enough time here, you learn kind of which one's shaded on a sunny day and where the winds uh, are blocked by the bluff faces. But if you're having a bad day on one creek, you're not stuck on that creek in the driftless area. You can drive 5, 10, 15 minutes and have two or three or, or more creeks all within easy access to you, which is really, really cool.
0: That's super cool, man. You mentioned storms. So I remember some pretty gnarly storms where we were in Kansas City. How do the storms affect the way you fish? Is that is that something that happens a lot? Big thunderstorms, big snowstorms, things like that?
1: So the, the first two years we opened our fly shop, we had 2,000-year flood events here.
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. Unfortunately,
1: that's becoming the new normal. We're not getting those nice light rain showers anymore. It all comes at once and, you know, it's a mess and blows roads out, knocks things over and cows get washed away, et cetera, et cetera. The nice thing about our fishery is it's fairly resilient to that. You know, obviously you're going to lose land and structures and things of that nature but the actual fishery and the creeks themselves they bounce back very very quickly because being meadow streams is most cases the water has a place to go they go out to the fields after these heavy rain events you can actually see trout cruising through cornfields, eating worms that are coming up from the soil which is pretty interesting but the the fisheries rebound from these big rain events fairly quickly and the, the nature of our soil and our rock is water soaks up here extremely quickly. You have that fractured limestone, you have that fractured sandstone. So our general rule of thumb, again, one of those umbrella statements, is that for every inch of rain, it's only going to take six to eight hours to get back to total clarity. Hmm. Water clears out really, really quickly here. So you can have a two, three, four inch rain overnight, and by midday, It, most of our, much of our water is fishable, Uh, but some of the headwater stuff, there are some that clear out a little bit quicker. Rain doesn't necessarily ruin your long weekend or your four or five days of of fishing here by any stretch of the imagination because of the geology, because, you know, being meadow streams, the water has a place to go. And as much as we all love that bluebird sky and crystal clear water where we can see everything in the creek, you want a slight stain for the best fishing out here. Fish are more comfortable. Uh, yeah. They're they're not seeing every shadow and spooking on everything. So a day or two after these rains, when we have kind of that pea stain to even a light chocolate milk stain. The fishing is fantastic, even on the surface still.
0: Cool. You mentioned it got really hot or sometimes it gets really hot. Is water temperature a factor? Do you have to bring that into your cross check or do the spring fed streams do the springs kind of help take care of that a little bit
1: the springs definitely take care of it and there are a handful of our creeks that stay temperature stable regardless of if it's 110 degree today or if if it's a Mm. negative 40 degree day Uh, but we still always encourage using thermometers winter and summer you know winter is not going to affect the health of the fish necessarily but the fishing stinks if you're not fishing that rising water temperature In the summer, in the past few years, like everywhere else in the world, droughts, temperatures etc etc there are some days that we'll put on our fishing report you know don't bother to fish today yes you can target them by the spring heads and where some of these teeny tiny trickles are, are coming in but they're not going to stay there uh, when you hook them they're not going to stay in that nice oxygenated water they're going to move out and try to get rid of it and get in some of that warm water so sometimes there's a potential that you can harm fish for sure with uh, with extreme temperature events so yes summertime thermometer is, is absolutely necessary we always say that above 65 or so, the fishing is going to stink. Now, hmm. Early morning, okay. it's always better. Uh, the springs are running 45 to 55 degrees out of the ground. So fishing the first three or four hours before the sun gets high, you you will have some good fishing and stable water temperatures. Then it only gets dicey in that late afternoon and early evening if it's a really, really, a really long stretch of hot days.
0: Can you tell me a moment, like a breakthrough moment or a light bulb moment when you went out to that fishery, something that you learned that um, I mean, you mentioned a little bit about the the temperature in the season in August. Was there anything else that you were like, oh, this is it really upped your game on fishing the driftless?
1: The thing that is the most important, if you want to fish the driftless, you have to be good at zero to 20 foot casts. The major, major problem in our fishery is everybody wants to belt a huge amount of line out and make really long hero casts. They are not only unnecessary, they're actually detrimental here. We fish super short, super stout leaders. I'm to the point that when I fish on my own, I fish a a eight foot, 16 pound bass leader with a tippet ring and a little bit of tippet off the front because I'm not throwing a lot of fly line. So I need something that can turn over with only five feet of fly line out. You know, specialty lines like the Rio Creek or the Scientific Angler's Creek Trout lines are phenomenal here, because of that very very short distance, super accurate game. So if you see, if you go to a fly fishing show. And you watch people cast and they're all trying to do the 60, 70, 80, you know, full fly line casts in the, in the pool. Those are completely worthless here. You want to be able to hit, you know, very, very small sections, tuck into undercuts, whatever it may be. If you're good at 20 feet, you're, you will be an excellent angler at the drift list.
0: What size tippet do you usually put on?
1: So we do have spring creeks here. Most of our fishing is done with 4 and 5X. They're not by super by. duper leader shy. We don't fish fluoro here. Part of it for environmental reasons. And part of it is you don't need it. You know, there you don't catch three times more fish when you fish fluoro. Uh, so you don't have to go super, super stealthy with your tippet. Now, Obviously if you're fishing finer tippet, you're going to catch a few more fish. You're also going to lose a few more flies, which fly shops love. Uh, but you don't <laughs> yeah. have to fish that really teeny tiny stuff here.
0: All right. Well, that's good to know. I would have thought, I, um, I probably would have went the other direction. I would have gone real light with my tippet, just because uh, I don't know. Um, if I'm a beginner at tire, which I am, slightly below average, I would say maybe approaching average. Is there a couple flies that you would recommend that I could tie if I was coming out to fish with with you and your folks, Matt?
1: Anywhere in the driftless area, the number one food source for trout in the driftless are scuds.
0: Really? Okay. Yeah.
1: Yep. So scuds are extremely important, simple size, and they're, they're not huge. They're not tiny. That 14, 16, sometimes down to 18s if the water's low and clear, but a gray or a tan scud with some weight on it is fantastic. If you only had one fly to fish in the driftless, it would be a scud of of some sort. So obviously uh, it's a more caddis centric fishery. Our bayfly hatches are good. Our caddis fly hatches are a little bit better uh, okay. The one surprising hatch that we get kind of late May into, into the middle portion of June are crane flies. The Driftless crane flies are phenomenal. That's ah. in about a size 16 or 18, so it's a smaller crane fly than than most anglers are used to. Uh, but a yellow to an orange 16 to 18 crane fly, that in that kind of late spring, early summer, that's a phenomenal hatch to fish and can sometimes last through the entire summer there. So scuds are the most important followed by your caddisflies, obviously both subsurface and surface, uh, and then your crane flies on the surface. And then this is a fantastic terrestrial fishery. We start fishing terrestrials in January, February. Obviously they're not around, that's more of an indicator at that point. But since we have a ton of meadows, uh, bit you know, cornfields, woods up on the hill, so we do get a ton of terrestrials, ants, beetles, grasshoppers, crickets, all that good stuff. Usually that that starts showing up in that late April, May when our peak of our season hits as, as the ground kind of dries out. Uh, so fishing, you no know, hippie stompers. Andrew Grillos' fly, the hippie stomper, is a hippie stomper. Thing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yep. That is a great name for a fly. I have not I've not heard of that. That's yeah, awesome.
1: A hippie stomper with a scud down below, and you will catch fish all year long in the driftless year.
0: All right. Yeah. I'm used to hoppers real late summer type of thing when they start coming out in the fields, uh, in, in the places that I've, I've mostly fished. Uh, you mentioned crane flies. I haven't, I haven't looked at tying a crane fly. It's probably a little bit above my skill set. So I'd probably be making those fly shop uh guys happy like you said coming in for crane flies
1: absolutely especially here because they're 16s and 18s and you know single knotted pheasant tail it's it's a pain in the butt so yeah i I highly recommend you buy them
0: (laughs) i mean if you just look at a crane fly and then imagine trying to tie what that looks like that's got to be uh i don't know i'm gonna look at it Maybe maybe i'll give it a shot even just the materials i probably have zero of the materials that you need what's your most memorable fish on the drift list and and why
1: so my most memorable fish was my first tiger trout out here tiger trout are wild here they don't stock them it's you know a, a hybrid a sterile hybrid between brown trout and brook trout and they're super super rare in in the wild they're just crazy crazy rare and it actually took me 12 years to land one i had clients land them, you know all my other guides my you know Everybody else is landing. I'm going. Oh, when are you going to get your tiger? When are you going to yeah. get your tiger? And and they're not huge. You know, my mine was only about eight inches, but super super pretty, beautiful color yeah. on them. Uh, so that is by far my most memorable fish. You know, tiger trout are like they're more rare and and cooler to catch for our fishery than you know twenty inch fish. There aren't a lot of huge fish here, so those big fish are awesome. But catching an actual wild tiger is really really special here.
0: Is there anything you can do to try and catch a, a tiger versus other than just fish more? Is there certain streams that have more of them or is it just, is a unicorn man just hope yeah, for the best? It's total,
1: total unicorn. <laughs> it's <takes laughs> a lot of luck. Well, obviously yeah. if you're fishing kind of the more headwater creeks where there are some brook trout present, then you
0: know, yeah, they okay. can
1: successfully spawn and make them. Uh, but it's, it's such a crapshoot.
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, if you could only fish the driftless, Two days. I know this is going to be painful for you because you're a passionate, driftless anger, but uh, only two days on the drift list. Which two days would you fish and how would you fish it?
1: If I could only fish two days. Only two. I would say sometime in early June with crane flies because the crane fly bites so much fun. You can fish a little surface crane fly. You can dead drift it. You can twitch it. You can strip it like a streamer and fish will eat. So definitely that June crane fly hatch. And then my other favorite days to fish are actually midwinter. Our season opens the first Saturday in January, which is insane because it's Wisconsin and we can have 30, 40 below days. But when the conditions are right, when you get 25 degrees and sunny or 35 degrees and cloudy, you get a little bump in the the water temperature midday. That four hours of midday fishing can be some of the best dry fly fishing you'll get all year long because it's concentrated midge hatch and you're the only ones out there. You know, I can say this because I live five minutes away from a dozen streams. You know, I don't have to travel in the winter, but that winter midge fishing is awesome. And actually, midwinter is one of the best times to catch significantly larger fish. You know, throwing leech patterns or small streamers, you can get those sixteen, eighteen, twenty-inch fish to bite midwinter. You know, it's it's a an, an hardy angler's time of year. It's cold. It's miserable. Uh, but you're only fishing four hours. You know, that middle portion of the day is water temperature. It's nice to get outside. You don't. Sure any other anglers out there and it could be phenomenal. So crane fly hatch in the summer and then midges and streamers in the winter time.
0: How are you fishing those leeches in the winter? Are you stripping them or drifting them all the above or you got to get them down low? Uh, How's that look?
1: So typically we'll fish, we'll cast them into the riffle and either dead drift and twitch. So they're just moving a little bit or a really, really slow, long strip. You don't want them swimming super fast because everything's basically dormant at that point. You just want to put a, a side of beef in front of the fish's mouth and, and say, hey, there's something really tasty to eat. You better eat it because uh, your calorie intake is low right now. So very, very slow leech presentations in the wintertime.
0: All right. Fair enough. Before we move on, anything else that you want to share about the driftless uh, and why you like to fish it or things that you think people should know about the driftless region?
1: So I think the main point of the Driftless itself is you have hundreds upon hundreds of miles of trout stream with very, very good access. There's a lot of public access here, and it's all easy to get to. You know, you don't have to drive hours. You don't have to stay in the middle of nowhere. Um, There are other things to do outside of fishing. The the fishery itself rebounds after big storm events, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very angler-friendly fishery. If you're hunting for big fish, this isn't necessarily the place to come. We say most of our fish are hot dogs here. Your average fish are 8 to 12 inch wild trout and teeny tiny creeks. Obviously, we have some larger than that. We have some smaller than that, too. Uh, but it's just a really neat, easy to get to wild fish
0: fishery here. Very cool. Let's talk a little bit about some of the tactics you use to fish these streams My perception is that a lot of it is tight quarters. A lot of it is, uh, you even mentioned kind of like you don't have to worry as much about your back cast in certain seasons and things like that. So can you talk to me about the considerations you have for fishing it, uh, fishing the driftless or any stream in tight quarters and how you can just how you approach it, first of all?
1: So fishing in the driftless is unique, as you mentioned, in that it's short game uh, and accuracy. It's not, we don't necessarily have a bunch of overhanging trees or anything like that. They're fairly wide open meadows. In the springtime, vegetation's very low. It's super, super simple. It's like fishing on a golf course. But once you get into that late spring, early summer, and into fall, the uh, the bankside vegetation, if it's not a grazed meadow, is six feet tall. Uh, so then you're fishing in a corridor so the emphasis for the driftless as i said a couple of times is really being accurate at short distances we usually don't fish longer than a six or seven and a half foot leader here uh, because we want as much fly line out as possible to make that very short accurate cast and a long leader you know means less fly line out so we need to be able to turn something over Uh, our, our basic setup is a shorter rod as well shorter fly rods tend to be designed to be more accurate as opposed to more powerful we don't have to do complex mending here we don't have to bomb out long casts so mm-hmm. a nice it would best-selling rod in the shop from 90 dollars up to you know ungodly amounts of cash oh think, yeah
0: you can spend a lot i'm yeah. about to write a blog post about that exact topic like you we encourage it <laughs> 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 the best rod to buy is our fifteen hundred dollar bamboo yeah. whatever yeah
1: but, but all joking aside so any fly rod uh, that's about eight foot four weight is the best selling rod in the shop it, it can toss hoppers it can toss leeches it can toss trichos on, on finer tippet but it gives you accuracy and uh couple that with a very short leader our foundational leader is a seven and a half foot 3x or seven and a half foot 4x leader and then tippet ring to a short bit of tippet or just tie some tippet on there not some tippet on there however you like so again. The main consideration here is practice your casting at a very short distance and be able to be accurate. There are some days that it's a game of inches here. You know, if you're one inch off the bank or where you need to be, the fish aren't going to eat, just a a one fly whip over to the closer and the fish will eat type deal.
0: I would imagine uh, at least I'm getting a lot of my flies back. At least when I (laughs) am having my inaccurate cast, like I could probably go get it. Uh, It's in the, it's in the grasses. I can reach it. So maybe I'm losing less flies, but uh, you mentioned fishing in a corridor. That seems very challenging to me. Like I'm imagining these cause they're, they're turning, right? So you you have to kind of look for straightaways or, or, or a place where you can cast in an area where it's, you know, I guess you're not casting that far, so maybe it's not as much of a factor. But uh, you're just kind of kind of walking with the stream and casting straight away. A lot of uphill or upstream casts and kind of stripping down as it goes. Do you worry about lining fish? Is that you know spook them easily?
1: Yes, absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head is, is even when you're fishing in those corridors, the casts are so short that it doesn't matter too much. Uh, right. but yes, everybody here is fishing upstream and you obviously you don't want to put your fly line over fish. So,
0: but there's not much room. There's not much room to, to not do that. So I can definitely buy your game of inches statement for sure. What about spooking them with, um, how do you go? How do you, Approach not spooking fish with just with your wading or you're traveling up and downstream, that type of thing.
1: Easiest way to answer that is be as stealthy as possible. You don't need to crawl on your belly to get to fish. You will catch more fish if you do. You don't need to cast from a kneeling position. You'll catch a few more fish if you do. You know, you don't necessarily have to walk super, super slowly through the creeks. You can focus on the riffles where the broken water is and, and fish will eat just fine there. But the stealthier you are, the more you blend in with the environment, the more fish you will catch. It's not necessary on 90% of the days to to be, you know, hidden from them, so to speak. Uh, But a little bit of uh, slow down a little bit. Uh, Don't wear bright colored clothing, kind of the normal stuff. Don't cast shadows is even more important than color of clothing. Uh, But if you're not throwing shadows on the water, not moving really quickly and not making a ton of noise, you'll be fine here. Again, you yeah. can take it to whatever level that you want, uh, but you don't have to be, you know, commando crawling on your belly to uh, to approach these creeks.
0: What level are you at, Matt? What level are you at? Not
1: oh, I'm lazy now. Okay. <laughs> I just walk up and take a couple of cats. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: now, every once in a while, if, if there's, you know, significant fish or pot of fish that are rising, I, I'll definitely be, you know, casting from a kneeling position for sure. Just taking my profile down and getting my shadow off the water as much as possible.
0: Put the super sneak on them, which I imagine can be tricky when you've got the high grasses and stuff on the bank. Yeah, well. exactly. Yeah, because maybe you're in the water even. What yeah, about sight? Absolutely. What about sight fishing? Uh, you you talked about it a little bit before, but is that a good way to go about fishing? The driftless is is plan on sight fishing and going slow and waiting to see fish before you cast to them.
1: Absolutely. Yes, it's crystal clear spring Creek waters most of the time, so you can see a ton of fish in the water. Uh, you can kind of pick and choose sometimes which ones you want to cast for. But again, it doesn't always necessarily have to be that way. You can know that if if these streams are all going in the kind of an s-shaped curve, if you fish the curves of that Fs, If you fish the curves of that letter S, where the riffle dumps down into a little run or a small pool, it's usually pushing up against a bank, creating an undercut bank there, and those are trout hotels so you can stalk them and sight fish if you want you can head hunt and fish dry flies all day long if you want as well Uh, you're going to limit it a little bit doing that uh, but you can still do it and still be successful or you can lazy fish and just fish those undercut banks below riffles all day long and either way whatever your style of fishing is you you can have a good time out here
0: okay Cool. Before I ask you my last question, Matt, how can people find out more about what you are doing? Uh, your fly shot, maybe schedule a, a trip or just follow what you guys are up to.
1: Easiest way to learn a bit more about the fishery is visit our website, which is just driftlessangler.com. We're also Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that good social media stuff. Um, and even though we're closed in the off season, we're always checking messages and uh, emails and all that good stuff.
0: All right. Last question. If you could go back to when you first started fly fishing, um, what advice would you give yourself? One more tactical piece of advice, one more philosophical that would help you progress as a fly fisher?
1: I think one of the biggest mistakes that I've made, and I think a few anglers make this uh, as well, and this is a Midwest perspective, so it's a little skewed, is focusing solely on trout fishing. There are so many more opportunities out there, uh, bluegill specifically. I wish I would have fished more bluegill. You can work on your casting. They're far more forgivable. They're far more abundant. You know, it, it just, it's it's kind of a good foundational thing, um, as well as a way to up your skill set for any species that you fish for, be it freshwater, saltwater, you know, trout versus carp, whatever it may be, is to kind of diversify the number of species that you chase with the flock. You learn a ton by fishing for something other than your, your preferred species.
0: Yeah, 100%. What about more tactical?
1: For tactical, it's going to sound – everybody says this. Every guide says this. Every fly shop owner is practice. I wish I would have practiced more when I was first starting and practice at multiple distances you Now, going out there and, and taking a couple of false casts and going, oh, that was really fun is a lot different than having a marker at 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet and making sure you're fairly accurate at all those distances at different winds, being able to cross body, just giving yourself more tools in the toolbox. Obviously, casting is the foundation of everything fly fishing. You have to be you know kind of nutso and and love to do that to begin with to be a successful fly angler, but you can't progress or be very very good at anything without a ton of boring foundational practice stuff.
0: get the blocking and tackling down simply. Uh- exactly. That's good advice from someone who didn't watch a football game in, uh, <laughs> in <laughs> I understand college. the metaphor though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you for coming on that journey with me. Hey, Matt, I really enjoyed talking with you. I love this area. I want to go fish it. Um, it sounds beautiful. And, uh, thanks for taking the time and being on the podcast.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Wade out there. Fly fishing podcast. You can learn more about some of the topics we discussed in today's episode show notes. For more fly fishing ideas, stories, and artwork, check out my blog and online gallery at wadeoutthere.com. If you want to make Wade Out There a part of your own fly fishing journey, please subscribe and share. Until next time, Wade Out There.